0: Amen. Lord, we thank you indeed that you are the light of the world and that you came to earth into this dark place, Lord, to bring light to sinful man. Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace, for your infinite mercy. And Lord, we ask as we go to your word right now that you would be our teacher. I pray, Lord, for any here who do not know you, that even now, Lord, you remove the scales from their eyes, soften their hearts to their need for you. Lord, each of us, desperate for you, each of us, without you, would be hopeless and helpless. But Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace. May you be our teacher this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Turn your Bibles to Genesis, or Genesis, Galatians chapter 2. Continuing our verse-by-verse study through the New Testament. A couple quick prayer requests. Um, most of you know, or many of you do, uh, our, our youth pastor Vince and his wife Tiffany, they gave birth to a, 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 their third child this week, and each time they've had children, they've been born very premature, and this is the third time, and, and God's good, and little Ezekiel was born, and he weighs one pound and 12 ounces, he's 12 inches long, and you know, at this point, they believe he's healthy, they're waiting to receive some tests back, but Please be praying for little Ezekiel de la Torre, amen? Pray for him, He's, and you know what, it, it's just a testimony to God's grace because each of their children were born about the same size and each of them, the other two are very healthy. So God is good, amen? And so be praying, and you know, on a, on a, I guess from a selfish motivation, I would ask that you would continue to pray for my daughter Ashley, she's in India, my 17 year old daughter, she's been over there about two and a half weeks, feels like three months. Those of you who have kids, you know what I'm talking about. But keep praying for her. Things are going well. Well, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. And as we continue this morning, we're going to look at this, this very exhortive letter. Exhortive, you know, it's a, it's a letter written to the people and the churches in the region of Galatia. Galatia was not a city. It was more like a state or a region with many cities in it. And Paul, had plant, Paul was the one who, again, had planted the, the churches there. He had seen God doing great and awesome work, and then all of a sudden word came that these Judaizers had come in and were adding to the gospel. Basically what they were saying was they came into these Gentile believers who had given their lives to Christ and told them it wasn't good enough just to believe in Jesus. That you had to believe in Jesus, but yet you had to keep the law of Moses. Yes, you had to keep the rules and the rites and the rituals, and if you didn't, then you weren't truly saved. They were saying that when Jesus, basically, what, when Jesus said on the cross to Talestai, "It is finished," that he was a liar, because it wasn't finished. It was Jesus plus several other things. Now the word comes back to him, and we see his letter to the church in Galatia, and he's very bold and very blunt and very direct. Hard to imagine that Paul would be that way, but even more so in this letter than any other, because he says, "You know what? If you guys are adding to the gospel, let you be accursed." If someone comes and preaches another gospel, a different truth, anything other than Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by him is a false gospel. And he said, you know what, when they come in, even if an angel appears to them, it's in in chapter 1, even if an angel appears to them, don't believe it. Cast them out. And sadly, there are entire cults built today and false religions built today on a man who said, an angel showed up and told me, and here's the new gospel. You know, the Bible's got it wrong. We need to have another testament to Jesus Christ. You know what? We don't need any more testaments to Jesus Christ. We got this one right here. Amen? And it's the Bible. This is the Word of God. And so then we get, again, to chapter 2, And now he goes before the Jerusalem council, and he's talking to other believers who are confused about what do we do with these Gentiles? You know, most of the early Christians were Jews. So they had been circumcised. They had been observing the, quote, trying to observe, nobody could, trying to observe the law of Moses. And they saw Jesus as the fulfillment of all of the Jewish law, which is exactly what he was and who he is. So then these Gentiles are getting saved who had been pagan idol worshippers. And now they're getting saved, but they never really had this Jewish background. They had never been circumcised. They had never kept the law. So don't we have to first make them Jews before they can become Christians? And so this word is coming back. And Paul goes before the council to say, let me tell you what God's been doing with the Gentiles. You know what? We're preaching Jesus Christ and they're getting saved. And God is doing a miraculous work, and they're being filled with the Holy Spirit, and it didn't require circumcision for it to happen. And so Paul's very bold, and he's very direct, that again, it's Jesus plus nothing that equals salvation. Now, we'll see in the text this morning, that Paul continues his rebuke or debate, not really a debate, it's one-sided conversation, with Peter. Now Peter's a godly man, no doubt about it. Peter is a mighty man of God, he was not the first Pope, contrary to what some would tell you, because Peter was a sinner saved by grace just like the rest of us, and the rock that the church was built upon is Jesus, not Peter, and aren't you glad? And as we, see in the, we still continue to see in the text this morning, Peter became a very clear example of hypocrisy because when he showed up in Antioch, he started to eat with the Gentiles, And then some of the Judaizers showed up, and he started to say, well, man, you know, this is going to look bad, and, you know, they might ridicule me if I'm hanging out with these, you know, pagan idolaters. They're not pagan idolaters anymore, they're Christians. But he said, you know what, it's going to look bad, so he withdrew from them. And when Peter withdrew, so did many of the other Jews, Jewish Christians, including Barnabas. And that's what happens when those who are leading the flock turn away from God, they take others with them. And you know what, dads, it starts in your home. You, lead, you get away from the Lord, you're going to take your family with you. Those of you who are involved in any kind of ministry, if you're just the example in your neighborhood, you're the example at, at work, you walk away from God, you're going to take others with you. And so Paul here is now having this conversation with, with Peter, openly rebuking him because openly he had turned away from God. And you know what, you might say, well that's kind of harsh to say turned away from God. You know what? when you start worrying about what men think more than what God says, that's exactly what you've done. Now, Peter praised God. We know repents, gets right with the Lord. Praise God for that. But at the same time, praise God for a guy like Paul who loves Peter enough and who loves the people enough to come and address it in a very direct way. And so we're going to pick up, and I'm going to read verses 11 through 14 just to give you the context. But we're going to see that there really is only one way that you and I can be justified. Now, we're going again, a word that Kind of difficult for some of us. What does it mean to be justified? We'll look at that this morning. And as we get into next week's text, we'll see that we're justified by faith in Christ. And it's by that faith in Christ that we're made righteous, that we're rendered innocent, that we can enter into fellowship with Almighty God, that we die to the person we used to be, that we receive the Holy Spirit into our lives, that we can see God do miraculous works, and we can experience the blessings of God. It's through faith in Christ, not in good works, not in keeping of the law, that we are saved, made righteous, alive to God, given the Holy Spirit, and experience His blessings. And that is the focal point of the text this morning. Because Paul, again, is that now, this is so hard for people. I even talked to to the assistant pastors this week. It's so hard for people to grasp the grace of God and then a fruitful walk. Some people say, well, if you preach the grace of God, then people will think, well, I got the grace of God, now I can just live like the world. It doesn't matter how I live, right? I, I'm going to heaven, I got the get out of hell free card in my wallet, I can just do whatever I want. And then the other extreme is, well, man, you know, legalism and the law, man, and when you, when you say you've got to have bare fruit in your walk, and now you're being legalistic, I want you to understand something. You've been saved by grace and nothing you can add to it. You cannot add to your salvation. You can't do anything to make yourself be saved. You can't be good enough, as we'll see this morning. But, I want to make it also very clear, that the grace of God transforms our lives, and that grace produces righteous fruit. Amen? And so, I know sometimes people struggle with that, but I want you to understand, more than anything else this morning, that you're justified in Him. So now, let's take a look here in verse 11-14, through 14, and then we'll begin in verse 15. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision, the Jewish Christians. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Hypocrite means mask wearer, somebody pretending to be something that they're not. Somebody who says one thing but lives another way. They were trusting in Jesus Christ, but here they were fearing men. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, before them all. So he says this to Peter. He's addressing Peter, but he says it before them all. So the rest of the chapter, as we're going to look at this morning, he's addressing Peter, but he's speaking before the entire group. He's speaking this openly before everyone. If you, being a Jew, live in a matter of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as Jews? Look, Peter, you know that when we got saved, that we were set free from the law. Peter, you know that when Jesus Christ came into your life, it was no longer about how good you can be, but about His grace and the awesome work upon the cross. Peter, you know that you could never do it. You could never be good enough. You're a Jew, You grew up with the law, and you could never fulfill it. Now why do you place that same burden on the Gentiles when you yourself couldn't do it? Why do we place burdens on others when you and I both know that we cannot be good enough? Amen? How many of you don't struggle with sin anymore? Raise your hand. You put your hand up, you're prideful, and you're lying. Amen? The point is that we are all sinners in desperate need of a Savior, and we all struggle in our walk because we carry the stinking flesh around. Amen? And that's why we're going to see in the text today so clearly how we must die to the person we used to be. It can be no longer me, but Christ living in me. And that's the point he's going to make, is look, you couldn't do it, Peter. Why are you putting a burden on others that you can't do yourself? You know what I find interesting? The people that are most legalistic are always the same ones who are the most self-righteous. And the sad part about it is that they're blowing it, and they're in bondage to it. And you know what? He who the Son sets free is free indeed. And as Christians, we don't walk around in condemnation. We don't walk around not knowing we don't measure up. We're convicted by our sin, but we're not condemned. Amen? Conviction draws us back into right fellowship. That's a good thing. Praise God for conviction. But it's not condemnation. And if you're here this morning and you're walking around condemned all the time, I want to encourage you that the price has been paid. You're a child of the King. You're going to heaven and the Lord loves you. Amen? And I'll be encouraged by that. I also want to have a real heart for those of you here this morning who don't know the Lord. And I know there are some. In a room this size, there are people that don't know the Lord. I'm going to give you an opportunity today before you leave to get straight with God. And you know what? I've been praying all week for you. I've been praying that God would bring people here by divine appointment, that your eyes would be open, that your, you know, your heart would be softened. You know what? This would be a great day. Get saved today. Get baptized this afternoon. Amen? Amen. I mean, God, and God brought you here, not by chance. I even believe there's some sitting in the chairs right now that you might think that you're saved, but you don't know. And you might think that salvation came by something you tried to do. We're going to see very clearly where salvation comes from today. And you can know that you know that you know that you're going to heaven, that you know the creator of the universe. You can know that today. And today is the day of salvation. Let's pick up in verse 15. It says, We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. By nature, by birth, by physical origin. That's the word in the Greek, what it means. We who have been circumcised, raised with Moses, the very things that the Judaizers added as requirements of salvation. He said, and not sinners of the Gentiles. Remember that the Gentiles, prior to the cross of Christ, the Jews looked at the Gentiles as dogs. They called them Gentile dogs. They called them the uncircumcised, the unclean, you know, the pagan idolaters. And he says, you know, we're of Judaism by nature. We were raised and born and bred and educated in the law and the prophets. And these Gentiles have no knowledge of God. Have none. They don't get it like we do. They didn't grasp it the way that we did. We are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. Now look what he says. We had the law. We had every opportunity to walk with God. And look how we did. And look at verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Underline that in your Bible if you underline anything knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. Now justified, what does that mean? When I was a youth pastor, I used to say justified, just as if I never sinned. Justified. The word justified in the original language means declared righteous or rendered innocent. So how are you and I rendered innocent? How are you and I declared righteous? We've all sinned. I'd hate to know how many... I, I'm glad there's no tote board with my sins on it. How about you? I'd hate to see what that number is. I don't want to know. Amen? But praise God, I've been... rent, However big that number is, I've been rendered righteous. I've been made holy. I'm in right standing before Almighty God. Now, how did that happen? How am I justified? How is it that... It's just as if I've never sinned. How is that even possible? Now here's the thing, guys. No matter how many good works we do, it cannot wipe out the sin that we've committed. It cannot. And we're going to see very clearly that that's the case. Salvation, justification, just as as if I've never sinned again, not by works of the law. Paul reminding Peter, and all that he spoke, that the law could not save. Look, we knew the law, and we knew we couldn't do it. We knew the law, and all it did is it showed us, as we're going to see even more clearly next week, that the law reveals sin, but the law cannot save. The law is a tutor or a taskmaster that leads us to the cross. It's the law that's a mirror that's put before our face, and we realize I can't do it, and it makes me realize I need to be born again. I need to be redeemed. My sin must be paid for, and I cannot be good enough. You know what? You cannot, you will not see your need for a Savior until you realize that you're a sinner. There will be no conversion until there's been conviction. And the law's purpose is to shine that light and reveal to each and every one of us that we're sinners. That's why I love the Bible. Because it continues to purify my heart. continues to transform my walk. And it continues to reveal to me my desperate need for a Savior. Knowing that a man is not justified, he is not cleansed, he's not declared righteous, he's not rendered innocent by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Our salvation, our justification, our right standing is based on our faith in Jesus. I'm going to take a few moments here and talk about the word faith. Because I believe it's a word that is misunderstood by a lot of people. John 20, 29, Thomas... Because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. Faith is not seeing and then believing. It's believing and then seeing. And so, it's so important that this word faith has been abused. There are people today that take the word faith and make it into some kind of you know, command that God must obey. If you just have faith, you can command God and tell Him what you want and He has to do it. Aren't you glad that's not true? Aren't you glad? And it's so sad because faith is not us commanding God, but it's God transforming us. Faith is not us somehow having this, you know, just, you got to have more faith, you just got to, right? No, that's not it at all. Some describe faith as a movable force that originates with man that causes God to heed its every command. And if you just will for something hard enough, God will have to give it to you. And this is nothing short of blasphemy. Then there's the intellectual who says that faith is for the uneducated dimwits who believe in God in spite of the evidence to the contrary. You idiots, you believe in God. Have you seen him? Have you seen him? Where is he? Bring him down here. You know, it's a scientific fact that we all came from a Big Bang and an amoeba. That's the stupidest statement I ever heard in my life. I mean, think about that. It takes way more faith to believe that than to believe in the Word of God. Amen? And yet, there are the intellectuals that say that it's just superstition when we call it faith. I want you to know something. True faith is not blind optimism or a manufactured hope so feeling. It is certainly not a belief in something in spite of the evidence, because that would be superstition. True biblical faith is confident obedience to God's word in spite of our circumstances. It's trusting in God completely, it's belief. That's what faith is. Now, it's described in Hebrews 11 a description of faith. A faith, it says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What does that mean? It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In the literal language, the word substance means to stand under or to support. Faith to the Christian is what a foundation is to a house. This substance gives us confidence and assurance that God, what God has promised will happen. And the evidence means conviction, the inward conviction that what God has promised he will perform. So it could be said this way. Faith is the confidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Here's what I want you to understand. Faith produces an action. True faith produces an action. You know, I've met many people. I've talked to some of you even in the past few weeks. Say statements like, well, I've always believed in God. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. And if that same always believing in God is the faith that you're trusting in for salvation, you need to really come to know God. And I want to say this too that I think we get a misunderstanding of what faith really is. It's not simply just believing in our heart, but it's a belief that changes the way I live. That's faith. Faith operates this way. God speaks, we hear His Word, we trust His Word, we act upon it no matter what the circumstances are or the consequences might be. The circumstances may seem impossible, the consequences may be frightening or even unknown, but we obey God's word just the same. That's faith. That's what faith is. It says also in Hebrews, by faith we understand. Faith enables us to understand what God does, to see what others cannot see. J. Oswald Sanders said this faith enables the believing soul to treat the future as the present. And the invisible is seen. When you have faith in God, you're no longer caught up in the temporary stuff because you're focused on the eternal. And you get just a different view of everything in life. You trust that God is in control. Now, how do you make your faith grow? You might be sitting here and saying, man, I want faith like that. How do you make your faith grow? Now, I'm certainly no spiritual giant by any stretch. Ask my wife, she'll tell you. But let me say this. I've had people ask me, you know, I want to have faith like you have faith. You know what I always tell them? You can. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. You want your faith to grow? Spend more time in God's Word. Amen? Well, it's not, well, I need to tarry. I need to conjure it up. I need to concentrate more. You need to read your Bible. Amen? You want your faith to grow? Spend time in God's Word says in Hebrews also, last verse, and we'll move on in our text, but without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And as you go through that hall of faith, let me encourage you when you get home, read Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham offered a more more excellent sacrifice. By, By faith, Enoch was taken away and did not see death. By faith, Noah, with godly fear, built an ark. Now that's radical, If you've ever thought about that, imagine building a boat that took you 120 years to build when it had never rained before. That'd be like God showing up to you today and saying, I'm going to drop fire out of the sky. And I want you to build a big protective metal shield the size of four football fields. And I want you to do it all by yourself. And everybody's going to mock you for the next 120 years when you tell them that fire is going to fall out of the sky. must be out of your mind. By faith, Noah built the ark. He didn't listen to what men said. He said, God told me that's it. I'm doing it. Well, praise God for Noah. Amen. Or none of you'd be here. We're all related to Noah. And praise God. It's been said that he really had faith because here's a guy with a wooden boat and had two termites on it. But... By faith, Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. Abraham went out by faith, didn't know where he was going, but God told him to go, so he went. That's faith. By faith, Sarah conceived and bore a child when she was past the age. Faith is more than just belief. It must produce an outward action. Amen? Now, Pastor Dave, you're telling us we don't need works, and now you're telling us that faith produces it. I want you to understand, it's not the works that save us. It's not the works that transform our life, but it's faith in God that produces the works in our life. If I truly believe, let me ask you a question. People will say I believe something all day long. It's not what I say, it's how I live. Isn't that true? If I got up here and told you all, uh, yeah, a bomb's going to go off here in five minutes. Going to blow this building to the ground. And then I just kept talking. And I didn't do anything. Would you believe me? If I said, if I'm running out the back door to grab the kids out of the nursery and telling you all to get out of the building, then you might believe me. And the same thing is true when we say, yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, I believe in God. But my life doesn't show it. Do I really believe? Do I really believe? If I really believe, my life would show it. Amen? If I really believe, if I really trusted, knowing that a man is not justified by his works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Even the most religious had to have faith in Christ. These guys were... Paul, who was Paul? Was there anybody more religious than Saul of Tarsus who became the Apostle Paul? No way. A Pharisee. The keeper of the law. Zealous for the law wanting to put the law on everybody else's back as well. And he went from being that guy to realizing that law won't save me, I need Jesus. And you know what? Praise God, because his eyes were opened. Now, something radical had to happen in his life for his eyes to be opened. And you know what? Sometimes we pray for people, and something radical is going to have to happen in their life for their eyes to be opened. Sometimes people will call me, they've been praying for somebody for months, and now they've lost their job, or now they've got a really heavy-duty illness, and they're like, oh man, how, that just doesn't seem fair. I go, wait a minute, that's an answer to your prayer. You were praying, Lord, bring the, do whatever it takes. God's doing whatever it takes. Praise God. Let's have an eternal perspective. And what he's saying here is, look, we've been justified by faith in Christ, not by our works, and we were the most legalistic people on the planet. We knew the law better than anybody else. It didn't save us, Peter. We had to put our faith in Christ. And why do we have to put our faith in Christ? Why? Because we know that by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Paul's argument is simple. If the Jews could be saved by keeping the law, why, didn't the gen- why could- if they couldn't be saved by keeping it, why are they telling the Gentiles to keep it? If you couldn't be saved by being good enough, why are you pouring burdens on other people with a bunch of legalistic rules? Let's just bring them to the cross of Christ. Let's share with them the love of Almighty God. Let them see Jesus in us. And you know what? You don't want to draw people to Christ more than anything else when they see the love of God in us. Not us, how how rigid we are with our rules. Amen? Now that's, I know this is contrary to what some of you think. Well, the more righteous you are, and the more religious you are, and the more faithful you are, the more rigid you are. I don't think so. Now can I say this? I don't go to movies filled with language. But you know what? I don't go not because I'm legalistic about it. Here's why I don't go. Because I love God so much that it breaks my heart when they curse his name and I can't take it. So it's not me being legalistic, it's not me keeping a a bunch of rules so that maybe I'll be pleasing to God and if I just don't do this and I don't do that and I keep myself from this and I keep myself from that, then I'll be pleasing to God. No, it's because I'm so in love with God, I don't want to do it. Do you see the difference? Too often people are walking around, well, if you really love God, you've got to do this, and you've you know, whoa, fall in love with the Lord, seek after Him with your whole heart, and then He'll change your desires. You won't want to go. You won't feel like, oh, can't go to that movie, I looked it up, and man, there's so many language, bummer, I was really looking forward to seeing, it. it won't be like that. It'll be, oh man, I don't want to see that. I have no desire to be involved in that. And it won't be legalistic. It won't be pointing fingers at others. It'll be conviction in your own heart. You cannot be justified. It cannot be just as if you never sinned because you do good works. That's what he's saying here. Your sin cannot be washed away by the things that you do. It's by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross that you are declared righteous. We cannot ever be good enough. I know I'm repeating this, but let me tell you why. I talked to so many of you guys who walk around condemned as Christians. I talked to so many of you who say, man, I think I've, I've committed the unforgivable sin. God could, God's never going to take me back. I, I've blown it. And I say, praise God, you're convicted. But the Lord, that's a that's sign that you belong to the Lord. Praise God for that. But We should not walk around condemned. We should realize we've been justified. It's just as if I've never sinned. Verse 17. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. Now what does this mean? If we seek to be justified by Christ and we are found to be sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Peter, if we eat with the Gentiles as Jesus did, are we then sinners? Has Christ led us into sin through His example? Did Jesus eat with the Gentiles? They called Him a wine-bibber. They said, you're hanging out with the prostitutes. Why are you talking to them? And the Lord said, I didn't come for the righteous, but I came for the sinners. Amen? And He's saying, the example He's making to Peter is, look, Peter, if we follow Christ's example, and they call us sinners... Has Christ led us into sin? Certainly not. You know what? Follow the example of Jesus over the example of men every single time. Amen? Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus had a burden for people. He didn't walk around. If anybody could have been self-righteous, it was Jesus. Amen? He could have been. He could have said, I'm God, you're not. Right? He could have walked around, it, but he didn't. Instead, he was a servant who loved everybody, who had a burden to see people come to know the Father. He had a burden for the lost. His heart was broken over the sins of the world. He wept over the sins of the world. He would lay down His life out of love for us. That's the Jesus Christ that we serve. And that's who we should be an example of. And so the point he's making is, look, people are going to call us, they call Jesus a wine-bibber. Jesus did not promote sin. He does not condone sin. And the opponents of grace will always argue again that if you preach grace, then people are just going to live like the world. No, they're not. Because if they're following Jesus Christ, He's going to be the example. And it's Him they're going to serve. And again, it's the the legalist who adds to the gospel, who robs the believer of his joy and his liberty and his freedom in Christ. Can I tell you this right now? I've never met somebody who's very legal, real legalistic who has any joy. I haven't met him yet. Because those two things don't go together. Walking around burdened. Oh, wheelbarrow full of rules. You've heard me say it. Oh, right? Walking around, you know, I get to go to heaven though. Oh, right? And you know what? I think of the Jews with the Sabbath. You guys are here when I go into the Old Testament. And it had so many rules on the Sabbath that they can't, it's supposed to be a day of rest and became a day of bondage. You can only walk this far, and you can't do this, and you can't cook anything, and you can't, right, you know, and if you light a fire, and you, think, you know, and you don't take a bath, and well, you can't, because if the water hits the floor, it's washing the floor, and you can't have your wooden teeth in, because you're carrying something around, and you've got to take your wooden leg off, because you're carrying a weight, and you can't, and everybody said, you know, you got guys with no teeth, and no leg, and no food, and dirty, can't walk, can't go anywhere, can't do it, you know, uh, and they're just petrified, they're going to break the law, and you know, I met a, a Jewish rabbi, he said, I have 252 laws I must keep, I said, how's that working out? How's that working for you? Oh, it's very difficult. It's not difficult. It's impossible. You can't do it. I know 10 of them, and you're blowing those. I know the other 242 are. But whatever they are, you can't do it. That's why we need Jesus. Just as if I've never sinned, not by keeping 252 laws. Not by walking around petrified of every rule and oh, I and I, gotta, and I gotta, you know, and adding more rules to myself to make myself more righteous. He who the Son sets free is free indeed, Amen. and there's joy. The Holy Spirit is love and joy and peace, not burdens and condemnation. Oh, and I'll never measure up. You're right, you won't. So give up. You're right. Amen. Good place to start. I can't do it. Amen. I have so many people say, I can't do it. Praise God, you're right where you need to be. The hard part is when we think that we can do it. We think that somehow we can make it happen. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. To return to the law as a standard for salvation was to return to the place of condemnation, a place of bondage to sin and death. This was destroyed at the cross. The veil's been torn, you guys. Why do people want to sew it back up? When Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn, and we can enter into the holy presence of Almighty God. Anywhere, anytime. Did you know that? By the shed blood of Christ, veil's been torn, you can enter in. But there are those trying to sew the veil back up and say, oh no, you can't. Not if you don't do this and this and this first. Sewing up the veil. When man adds barriers, rules, and rites, and rituals to the simplicity of the gospel, he no longer enjoys the freedom of God's grace. Life's a life of joyless condemnation as he will always fall short again. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. Can I, can I encourage you? Don't add, and it blows my mind where people get some of this stuff. People call me up, you're not supposed to spend any money on Sundays. Really? Where'd you get that? Well, God showed me. Where? Where is that? Well, you're not supposed to buy what are you talking about, man? You're killing me. And this is the kind of stuff I get stuff like this all the time. Well, you're not supposed to do this, you know. You know, and it's so sad because then now there's so many extra rules that we can't keep that we walk around. I blew another one all the time. That's not our faith in Christ. It's just as if we've never sinned, and aren't you glad? Praise God for his grace. He says, for I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. What does the law do? Why does it exist? We'll see it again in Galatians 3.24, that the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. As I said before, law is a mirror. You hold it up in front of you. It says, thou shalt not lie or bear false witness. How many of you told a lie before? Hands on up, you're lying right now, right? Okay. So guess what? What did that mirror show us? Sinner. Amen? How many of you have ever put anything before God in your life, made anything else more important than God in your life? That's the first and the second commandment. You just broke, right there. Shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. You ever talked about God, spoke about God, used His name in any way other than worshipping Him or telling others about Him? Raise your hand if you've ever done that. Now, you broke another one. So what's happening as we go through the law? We go, okay, Well, now I've got I to gotta make sure I do all those things better. Well, even if you could, but you can't, but even if you could... You still have already broken it. And if God has one sin in heaven, He's got Earth part two. There can be no sin in heaven. Oh, we all know the mirror's been brought up in front of our face. We all know that we can't keep it. so now what are we going to do? I'll try being better. Well, that's great. So instead of sinning 10,000 times next year, send 9,500. That should get you some brownie points with God. No. We got it all messed up and we think that it's our good works. It's the effort that we make that somehow makes us acceptable to God. You'll never be acceptable based on your works. Time to give up. And he says in that verse, I through the law died to the law. What does the law do? It puts us to death. It makes us realize we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And praise God that that's what the law is done in my life and hopefully in yours The law has no ability to save us, but again, it does, from the world's perspective, continue to condemn them. The law demanded death for those who broke it, and the whole human race has fallen under that penalty, and that's why Jesus came. That's exactly why Jesus came. It's so clear. I'm dead to the law. Paul, Saul, who once sought to be the most righteous man, based upon the law, was ruled by it, was now dead to it, no longer ruled by it anymore, that I might live to God, look to the law for salvation and die, look to Christ for salvation and live. What are you basing your hopes upon? Who are you trusting in, you or the Lord? Is your faith based upon how good you can be or how great God is? Because you cannot be good enough. We all desperately need him. Alive to the law, dead to Christ. Alive to Christ and dead to the law. And the law does remain. Now some people struggle. They'll come up and say, Pastor Dave, so you're saying that the Old Testament's no good anymore. And that's not what I'm saying at all. Come on Wednesday night. I love the Old Testament. It rocks. Amen? Amen. It's great. And it's Jesus on every page and it points to him. But guess what? The law has been fulfilled in the cross of Christ. And that's why we're not dragging lambs in here anymore. Praise God. I'd, I'd be doing something else for a living. I don't think I'd be slaughtering sheep every week. Not my, I'm not, not my calling. You know, and can you imagine? And praise God. But you know what? The Old Testament is all pointing to Christ. It's great stuff. It's still God's Word. It still applies. But the law has been fulfilled in the cross of Christ. And we now live not bound to the law, but unto God. No longer bound to rules and rites and man-made rituals, but led by the Holy Spirit. Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Again, if you underline anything in your Bible, get your pen out. That is a great verse i have been crucified with christ paul's answering a question that he anticipates paul when did you die you just said you died to the law when did you die how did you die paul i've seen you you're standing right here how did you die and here's what he said here's how i died i've been crucified with christ it's no longer i who lives but christ lives in me you want to know when i died to the law when jesus died on the cross He died in my place. I died to the law. It's condemnation when Jesus died in my place and took my punishment. When Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says, you died with him. When he rose, you rose with him. Now look at the next part. It says no longer I who live. I'll tell you what, that's a great thing. When we get when we can come, that's a glorious day. When we come to the point where it's no longer I who lives. When my life is no longer centered around my three favorite people me, myself, and I. It's no longer I who live. It's interesting that I is the center letter of sin. No longer I. No longer my flesh calling the shots, leading the way. It's no longer about me anymore. It's about Him. How do you know you're truly a Christian? It's about Him. It's not about you anymore. Your life revolves around Him. He doesn't revolve around you. Amen? Your focus, your heart, your passion... No longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So incredible. It says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and all things have become new. And does it blow your mind that Almighty God dwells within you? How great is that? How awesome is that? I got a down payment on heaven and the person of the Holy Spirit living inside of me. It's no longer I who live. It's no longer I who rule in my life. It's no longer I who directs my daily life. It's Almighty God living inside of me who comforts me, strengthens me, and directs my every single step. Greatest miracle of all is the inward transformation of someone from death into life. Everybody here in this room is either dead in sin or alive in Christ, and there's nothing in between. There are not multiple choice places to be. Contrary to what some of the movements we look at today would tell you. We are either dead in our sin or alive in Christ. I was once dead in my trespasses and sins, but now I'm alive in the Lord by His grace. Once condemned and headed to hell, but set free with the promise of eternal life. As the song says, I was once lost, but now I'm found. I was once blind, but now I see. I was once in bondage to my sin nature, and now I'm indwelt by the Spirit of the living God. No longer condemned by the law, but justified by faith. Those are the choices, you guys. Condemned by the law, or justified by faith. Dead in my sins, or alive in Christ. And every one of us is in one of those two camps. Either you're on the throne, or God's on the throne. Either He's ruling and reigning in your life, or you're ruling and reigning in your life. And you know what? When you rule and reign, it doesn't work out too well, does it? Not at all. And the life which I now live, I live in the flesh, I live by faith. It's more than just saving faith that changes my eternal destination. It's transforming faith that impacts my daily walk. Christianity is making him, as you've heard me say many times, more than Savior, he must be Lord. Wait a minute, Pastor Dave, you're getting legalistic again. No. He's more than Savior, he's Lord. Amen? But as my Lord, I'm not condemned. I'm encouraged, I'm strengthened. My life is directed as I make him Lord of my life. It's by grace through faith that we have been saved. And it's by grace through faith That I now live, and you now live your daily walk if you know the Lord. Living lives set apart unto God. It's only when I've died with Him that I can live for Him. It's only when I've died with Him that I can live for Him. Here's the great thing, you guys, we're about to close. We got to the baptism today. What is baptism? It is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a picture that I died to the person I used to be, and I am now a new creation in Him. Baptism does not save us, but baptism is a public confession that I've given my life to Jesus Christ. Do you need to be baptized to be saved? The answer is no. Should you be baptized? Absolutely. Why? It's an act of obedience. It's an outward statement of an inward change. Again, it's only when I've died with Him that I can live for Him. He says "Their faith in the Son of God who loved me. In the Son of God. Faith is only as good as its object. I don't care how strong your faith is. If you put it in the wrong thing, it's no good. Amen? Amen. I had a friend who used to put faith in his pinto to get over the hill. <laughs> we pushed that thing a lot of times. Anybody know what a pinto is? That was wrong car. Wrong. The object of our faith. Our faith can only be as strong as the object. It's not in ourselves, our abilities to do good works. It's not in another man or woman. It's not in a created being or a statue or a wood of stone, or wood or stone. Our faith is in the Son of the living God. God made manifest in the flesh. The Alpha and the Omega. The King of Kings. The Lord of Lords. The one and only true and living God. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's who we place our faith in. Nothing less. And no one else. Amen? Our faith is in Christ. And I love this part, who loved me. I'll give you one guess what that word love is in the Greek. What do you think? It's agape. And to those of you who might be new, agape means a selfless love. A love that loves someone outside of himself more than himself. He loved you. He loved me before the foundation of the world. Think about that. He loved me prior to me loving Him. He loved me while we were yet sinners. He loved us while we were sinners. You know what blows me away? God knows every wicked, vile thing I've ever done, every wicked, vile thought you've ever had, and He loves you anyway. Isn't God great? We think we've got to clean ourselves up to be acceptable to God. You can't clean yourself up to be acceptable to God. That's why Jesus came. Amen? It's only through Christ that we can be saved. How much does He love us? Well, what I said about faith is true about love. It always produces an action. What did Jesus do? He died in your place. How much does He love you? He'd rather die than live without you. Greater love has no man than this that He laid on His life for a friend. He did it he di- again. He died because He loves you so much. Last verse. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Paul concludes his public confrontation of Peter with this strong statement for these Judaizers and other Christians who would try to require of themselves anything else above the cross of Christ. He tells them, look, if you could be good enough, then Jesus didn't have to die. If you could be good enough, then why did he have to go to the cross? You guys remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked a question when he prayed. Father, there's another way. Let this cup pass from me. Another way for what? Another way for the sins of mankind to be paid for. And what happened? There was no other way. There is no other way. There is no other hope. Amen? Amen. That's why Jesus had to die the most heinous, violent death ever, and then suffer in the greatest way when the sin of all mankind, every sin you and I have ever committed, every sin of every man, woman, and child who's ever been born, all placed upon Him, and He was separated from the Father. That had to happen. Because if there had been any other way, then Jesus would not have had to die upon the cross. If, if redemption could come any other way, then the cross of Christ is in vain. You know, I'm going to close with this illustration and, then I'm, and be praying for those here who don't know the Lord. But let me say this. I was up visiting some relatives many years ago. I barely knew them. My, grand, my, great, my grandparents called and said, your great-great-uncle... Twice removed on your cousin's side, lives up there. You need to go see him. Okay. He made grandma happy. So we drove over there, my wife and I, we didn't have any kids yet. We get to their house and they had the whole family there, and it was a very nice dinner. And they told me, they began to tell me about a guy next door who had died. And how they were longing to see him. They were looking forward to seeing him in heaven one day. I said, Oh, he was born again. They said, Born again? What are you talking about? I said, Well, he was a Christian. Well, he was a good man. He was a good man. How many times a day does a good man sin? That was the question I asked And My wife was like, oh, no. (laughs) How many times a day does a good man sin? What, he made cookies for people in the neighborhood, and he mowed people's lawns, and he, you know. That's great. That's wonderful. Nothing wrong with baking cookies for people in the neighborhood, but don't base your eternal security on it. Amen? And sadly, I said, what if he only sinned three times a day? I've never met the guy that only sins three times a day, but let's say he did. That's a 1,000 times a year. How old was he? 87. That's 87,000 sins if he's the best guy I ever met. You stand before a judge with 87,000 crimes. What happens to you? You can't be good enough. It's by grace we've been saved. Just as if I've never sinned. Not by baking cookies. Not by mowing the lawn. Not by giving to charity. And not even by coming to church. Not even by reading your Bible. Not even by praying. We should do those things, but can we be saved through those things alone? Absolutely not. We must place our faith in Jesus Christ alone. No other way to heaven, no other path into salvation. It's the cross alone. It's not the cross plus your first communion. It's not cross the cross plus baptism. It's not the cross plus four hours a week of knocking on doors. It's not the cross plus no eating of meat. It's not the cross and not wearing makeup. It's not the cross and not going to dances and movies. These are things I grew up with. Legalistic church. It's the cross of Christ alone. And aren't you glad? So, I want to share with all of you who are here. If you're here today, you're here by divine appointment. If you already know the Lord, praise God. May you be encouraged. May you not walk around condemned. But may you live a life that bears fruit unto the Lord. May you fall more in love with Him and then walk in obedience to the conviction that He brings in your life. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world, He planned for you to be here today and for this to be the message that would be taught. God loves you enough to do it for even if it's just one of you here. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. So how can I be saved? How can it be just as if I've never sinned? It's not just believing that there is a God. It's not just believing that Jesus died on the cross. But it's putting your faith in Him. It's saying, Lord, I give my life to you. I invite you to rule and reign in my life. I ask you to forgive me for my sin. To fill me with your spirit. To walk with me from this day forward. To adopt me into your family. That's salvation. It's when we take Him into our lives that we can take His name. His name being Christian. So it must come first with confession. It starts here. Do you know that you're a sinner? If you know you're a sinner, praise God. If you don't know, we can make it real clear for you pretty quick. You're a sinner. Amen? Now that you know you're a sinner, that means you need a Savior. And guess what? Buddha did not hang on the cross for you. Joseph Smith did not raise from the dead. Mary Baker Eddy and Charles Taze Russell and every other cult leader out there—none of them paid the price for you, and none of them can justify you. Only faith in the one who suffered and died and then rose from the dead can do that. So what we're going to do now—the is the worship team is going to come on up. I'm going to—I want to pray with those of you who are here. If you want to know for sure that you're going to heaven, you can know right now. And today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off till tomorrow. Well, I have to give up this, I have to give up that. No, just come to the Lord, amen? You don't have to give up, just give up completely and say, Lord, I, I need you. It's a great place to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, for your love and your grace. And I do pray, Lord, if there's even one person here that doesn't know you, they would not walk out of here without the assurity of salvation. Lord, if there are those who are here who maybe even when they came, thought they were christians but lord they've been trying to do it their own way they've never come broken and repentant before you crying out to you asking you to be not just their savior but their lord father i pray just remove scales soften hearts lord i pray that people would again make today the day that their life is transformed for all of eternity that all the angels in heaven would rejoice Lord, we come before you just desperate to see you move in a mighty way. And Lord, with every head bowed, if you're here this morning and it's your desire to give your life to Jesus Christ, you've never openly confessed your sin and your need for a Savior, and you want to know for sure that you're going to heaven. You want to have the Spirit of the living God dwelling within you even right now. I'm going to ask you to do something really simple. The Bible says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. I'm not going to ask you to join a church. I'm not going to ask you to sign a card or anything else. But just to openly and publicly say, I want to give my life to Christ. I just want you to raise your hand right now so we can pray with you. Is there anybody here at all? The Bible says today is the day of salvation. I know there's got to be, God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Anybody else? I know for some of you are being stirred up. Don't let the enemy win. The Lord loves you. He'd rather die than live without you. Is there anybody else? God bless you. God bless you. Anybody else? Each of you that raised your hands, I just want you to pray with me as I pray this prayer. You can pray it silently in your heart. You can pray it out loud if you want to. And each of us just bear witness as they pray, just quietly as they pray. Each of you raise your hands. Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning and I confess that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me for my sin, to fill me with your Spirit, to make me a new creation in Christ. I believe that Jesus Christ is God, that He died on the cross, that he paid for my sin and he rose from the dead. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving me. Help me, Lord, to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. As we get ready to close in a worship song, I also want to encourage, if not exhort you, if you've not been baptized, not legalism, not works, but pray about making that public confession today. Amen? He hung on a cross for us. Can we go into the ocean for him? Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Let's all stand and close the worship song.